0: So one of the things that might confuse people sometimes, and I've heard this before, is they don't understand why people stay in an abusive relationship. They'll hear about someone that has been in an abusive uh, marriage for 20 years, and they from the outside will judge the victim or the survivor and think, why did you stay in that relationship? for 20 years and i suppose i used to have a similar judgment before i was a therapist it just seemed very foreign to me and as i became a clinician and started to learn about domestic violence or they also call it now intimate partner violence when when people are i started actually working with perpetrators and with survivors And I started realizing that the situation is much more complex than I thought it it was. And then I started actually realizing how people can actually enter into a, a cycle, is what they call it, Of denial and uh, that it goes in various different cycles. And today we're going to talk about that cycle so that people can understand it. And I've brought uh, an expert on the show to talk about it. Rebecca Bloom, welcome back to the show.
1: It's always fantastic to be here.
0: Yeah. As I've said before, it's great to talk with an actual clinician instead of some of the other Yahoo's. (laughs) That I talk to like a where America. do you
1: find that motley crew? It's just amazing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> um, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage family therapist.
1: Hi, I'm Rebecca Bloom. I am an art therapist, and I also do uh, somatic based work. In uh, somewhere in Seattle.
0: Yeah, you're moving your office, but you're going to stick to downtown.
1: Fingers crossed.
0: Fingers crossed. So, uh, you brought a handout here that I've seen many times the Wheel of Power and Control. Would you like to talk about it, Rebecca?
1: Yeah. Um, so often I have heard from clinicians that they don't work with, it's mostly women. And what they call it is kind of an active domestic violence situation. Um, They view those situations as too dangerous. And I've always thought that that's really too bad since so many people are in relationships where all kinds of violence is taking place.
0: Why don't they work with people in situations like that?
1: I think there's a real fear that the perpetrator would come to the house or would come to the therapeutic office somehow, that this idea that by being involved with this client, they're putting themselves at risk. And I just want to say, you know, knock on wood in my own practice that has never happened. But also I think people don't have a context for what is happening. There's that same judgment that you were talking about, um, that this should just be over by now. The person should be able to move on. And what I like about sharing uh, the wheel of power and control uh, with clients and when i taught i also used it there was that um it puts things into a context that violence can happen on a multiple levels i've worked with women where the violence was mostly about financial control um that can be as damaging to someone's life as we put a lot of weight on physical violence well if physical violence happened then it would be really bad uh, but this, but we now know through uh, what we can see through trauma work that all kinds of violence impacts
0: right. people. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up that therapists will often, upon learning that a new client is a victim or even a perpetrator for that matter of domestic violence or intimate partner violence, they will say, I can't work with you. You're going to have to work on that first. And then once that's over and done with and completely over, then you can come back to therapy. And you're saying that's a bit of a tragedy because of of uh, irrational fears that the therapist has and judgments that they have about the situation. I, I, yeah, I, I find that a lot of therapists are worried about messiness. Mm-hmm. They They want things to be very clean and 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 that's understandable uh, there are some situations that i actually avoid because of messiness like i'll all avoid uh, custody battles in families if there's a custody battle in my experience it's it's a messiness that i can't necessarily help with and only annoys me professionally cuz they end up having to uh, ask me for legal help and i always refuse and then they but they then they subpoena their you know Anyway, so so with IPV, intimate partner violence, DV, domestic violence, I'm guessing it, they might have a similar worry. Uh, it's similar to if someone comes into therapy with a heroin addiction or something, an active heroin addiction or alcoholism or something, and the therapist will say, you, you're going to have to go get treatment for that, and then once that's done with, then come back. And there's some wisdom to all these things, but you're saying that it's a bit of a tragedy because maybe we can help people in those situations. And as they're getting help from other professionals, more specialized in those areas, we can be, uh, we can help them as a, you're not saying this, but do you agree with me in that way?
1: Yeah. I also think that domestic violence is so prevalent in our culture. And when we turn away a client, because that's an issue that they're addressing, um, we're really doing a disservice to yeah. that client right. uh, i I understand everybody has issues that they don't feel comfortable working with, but my hope is that most clinicians would hopefully gain being comfortable in working with domestic violence because if they say they don't work with that issue, what if the client has to hide that that's occurring? You right. know I could see people saying denying that it's happening
0: right. Yeah, and many clients have perhaps we might say a lesser degree of this in their relationships and not above the threshold that you would say you have to go to a specialist in this area. And if we're unaware of the uh, issues and the way of treating this, then we're missing something potentially in people's lives. Okay, so what is the wheel of power and control? What what are the different aspects of this?
1: Well, what I like about this is that it um, shows that there's so many aspects where control takes place. So when I do this with clients, I so vis- you can't see it, people, <laughs> but it's visually it's a circle and it's broken into eight wedges, and I will go through each wedge with the client and we'll really talk through if these issues are present in their relationship. And what's so interesting is that a lot of times I would say four to six are present, but a different four to six for other people aren't. Um, So they can see that this, in this huge umbrella of intimate partner violence, it can look so different for different people.
0: Right. So the wheel of power and control in, in essence lists eight different categories of power and control that perpetrators will perpetrate. Mm-hmm. And you have listed here, or not you, but and I. for some reason I remember, I think I saw this exact same thing in the late 90s, so I'm guessing this has been around for a long time. Is that your impression?
1: Yeah, I mean, this. I printed this out in 2008.
0: <laughs> yeah, way back in 08. In uh prior to the election so uh George W was still president when yes. you uh and when you it, printed this out and
1: it's not copyrighted it has no authorship
0: yeah i'm sure on it's it. like they they usually people don't mind when you <laughs> use this sort of stuff for good so the eight different ways that perpetrators will perpetrate are using intimidation yeah you know, Verbal inter- intimidation or th- threats or some kind of... In- you'll feel intimidated by someone that's using intimidation. Two, using emotional abuse. So putting someone down, calling someone stupid or uh, you know incapable or um, l- putting down. A lot of put-downs. That kind of stuff is typical to emotional abuse. Using isolation... Isolating the victim from your friends and family, people that can help you, keeping you home so that you don't have any power in the world. Four, minimizing, denying, and blaming. It's pretty self-explanatory there. Five, using children. So if you don't do what I say, I'm going to do blank to our son or I'm going to not give him money or I'm going, you know, just triangulating that way. Uh, six using male privilege. I mean, I, I, I guess we could rattle off different things along those lines. But what do you think they're referring to in that category? I
1: mean, there it's really this is a man's job. I rule the house. These are ah. my rules. What you, you know, you're coddling the children by parenting them I that see. way.
0: Right. It says in the Bible that men should run the run the household. You have to listen to me. That kind of stuff. Uh, seven using economic abuse, so not uh, giving the person any money or only giving them money when they're a good, when they behave well or something, and then eight using coercion and actual threats. So if you don't do this, I'm gonna I'm gonna beat you. So that that's the wheel of 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 power and control. And then the outside of the wheel, it it points out that this can involve physical violence or it can involve sexual violence. And all those different behaviors are things that, that perpetrators will use to control and to exert power over their victims. So sometimes I also will see different graphics used for domestic violence or intimate partner violence that have to do with the cycle mm-hmm. common to people that are in this situation where off the top of my head, it's like you there's... There's a an abusive behavior that that occurs, like um something that is abusive to the victim, either physical or sexual or emotional, or as you said, using money uh as a your dog is uh, She's is, shaking it out. She's shaking it <laughs> out. Um and uh then after the abuse and the terribleness, there's a honeymoon period mm-hmm. where the, person, the, the perpetrator will apologize and make up for it. They'll try to make up for it. They'll buy the victim flowers or they'll, they'll say they're sorry or they're never going to do it again or they might even go into therapy during this time. And then there's a period of, of calm and then a period of, of mounting Tension and uh, worry and...
1: uh, Sometimes they call it walking on eggshells.
0: Walking on eggshells. And then there's another another blow up, an Mm -hmm. abusive event, which is followed by another honeymoon period. And I'm sorry. And it just keeps going on and on and on.
1: And I see it now with my clients who have left that partner, but they still have children and they're, they're still interacting. You know, there'll be good months. There'll be good weeks. And this idea of, oh, maybe I could have more contact with him. Maybe I could let him inside the house again. It's so hard to drop the children off, you know, at the park or at the front door. And then maybe the first visit where he can come in the house is fine. And then all, you know, maybe the next visit, he loses his mind, literally, in front of the children again and is berating her. And, you know, she's like, how did we get here again? I thought... Things were getting better so that the cycle can perpetuate. And that's what's so hard for the survivors is that this idea that, you know, I've moved on, I've gotten better, but the perpetrator can be stuck in these patterns forever. Yeah.
0: And the thing that I've learned in recent years is that in the past I had this false, mostly false notion that perpetrators would do this in a uh, in a cunning way that they knew that a good way to abuse someone is to you know, be intimidating, do something horrible to scare them, and then immediately follow it up with a bunch of nice things, and then uh, you know that's the cycle. Seem to be conscious on behalf of the perpetrator to me, but and and certainly that can happen if you have psychopathic sadists, they might actually engage in volitional control over that cycle, but for the most part, my in my experience with perpetrators in the situation is that they're just as much of a quote unquote victim of their own emotional regulation issues as everyone else's in that they don't consciously plan out this cycle. It happens because they in all likelihood were traumatized relationally as children. And this is their way of coping with attachments. They like anyone else need to have closeness with other people and crave that the way anyone else does.
1: And I have seen in my practice, will quickly move on and find more partners. (laughs) Right. So that often my clients come back and, you know, they're trying to sort it out. They're single for a while and they will say, you know, you're not going to believe this, but my ex already has someone living with them. I'm so shocked. Right. Um, So they're able to create intimacy Um, really effectively.
0: Right. Not, again, because they're, and and usually the way the language is for the perpetrators, and certainly this can be the case for psychopaths and sadists, but for the vast majority of the perpetrators, in my opinion, the, uh, the, so the language sometimes is mismatched. You know, it'll be like, oh, they can manipulate their way into someone else's life. And certainly, you know, That can be comforting, I suppose, in some ways to say it that way. But in my experience, it's like saying all of us manipulate our way into an attachment relationship. You know, we all, even perpetrators of IPV, need biologically the attachments with other people. And so because they're in denial and they're not getting help and they're traumatized, their same patterns get uh, reengaged in the next relationship just the way it is for all of us. All of us engage in traumatic reactions that we've incurred uh, as children, just different kinds. And so their kind is they need attachment. They're desperate for attachment and love and closeness. And at the same time, they have extreme traumatic reactions when that attachment is threatened. And so, for instance, classic example and I've talked about this before on the podcast, a wife who's a victim stays late after work and the perpetrator husband is home and he's looking at his watch and he's thinking, where is my wife? Where's my wife? And a thought runs through his mind of she's cheating on me or she's, she's leaving me. I'm insecure right now. I'm worried that my wife is going to reject me now. He doesn't acknowledge that fear and he doesn't communicate that fear. He converts that into anger and control because in his life, that's what the solution is. Maybe it was modeled to him being a child. And so his solution to that is when she gets home, I'm going to let her have it because this cannot happen again. It's not because he has this overall desire in life To control everyone. It's because he's desperate for attachment and love, and he's so worried that he's going to lose her that he resorts to a dysfunctional solution that he was taught in some way or learned over time as a young person. And he does this, uh, and then it ends up ruining the relationship at the end, which is you know this catch twenty two for people like this. Their efforts to gain attachment actually backfires in that it creates a, a tremendous gulf between them and their and their partners.
1: But and <laughs> that also I've seen a pattern that any type of connection is valid. So screaming, hitting, throwing uh at least it's connection.
0: Yeah. Right. And the cure is, again for the non-psychopaths and non-sadists, the cure is to help the perpetrators find and cultivate attachments without having to resort to this highly destructive, dysfunctional behavior of power and control and also, in all likelihood healing the traumas that they went through as as young people uh, and then obviously the victims uh, as well so um, what else can we say about this?
1: Well, I thought we could go through one by one sure. and kind of get in depth and do a little Let's do it. volleying so I'll start off with using intimidation, uh, making th- them afraid by using looks, actions, gestures, smashing things, destroying their property, abusing pets, displaying weapons.
0: Yeah, right. This is something that is often misunderstood. Someone will break something or they'll throw a chair at the wall, and, but not at the victim. And from an outsider's point of view, if you've never been in, those, in, the, in that situation, you'll be like, well, how is that abusive? The person is just angry and they, you know, they broke their chair. What's the big deal? For the victim, there is a very real, often, uh, depending on the situation, but in this context, a very real uh, message being given to the victim that this chair could be your head.
1: Right. This could be you
0: and 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 make no mistake about it i'm angry at you and step 1 is this chair and step 2 is your skull and believe me if you've ever been targeted in that way you very much start freaking out and are absolutely terrified in some ways maybe even more terrified and that's the other thing that we should point out, and maybe we'll get into this on other points here, is that the physical violence is often the least of people's troubles mm-hmm. and worries. It's the threat. It's the never knowing when it's going to happen. It's never knowing what is going to set the person off. It's never knowing how far it's going to go. If if they could look it into a crystal ball in the future and say, I'm going to be punched in the face on this date. I'm going to be pushed down on this date. I'm going to be slapped on this date. And and I know that for sure. For a lot of victims, they could relax. Not that that's a wonderful thing to think about, but a lot of the anxiety has to do with when's it going to happen? How bad is it going to get? Is the person going to kill me? Which, right. is, which is often a worry too. Have you seen the O.J. Simpson uh, TV show? I, I missed it. Oh, God. You got to watch. Well, it's, it's on demand on uh, cable, which is how I watched it. And it's amazing. Uh, are you gonna watch it?
1: I don't know. I'm, my psyche is very fragile as I have to move my office.
0: <laughs> well, it's it's done in a very entertaining way, and they don't.
1: I love David Schmader. Schwimmer. Schwimmer.
0: Yeah, he's pretty good in it. He plays Kardashian,
1: which I'm so excited about.
0: Yeah, and it's um, it's it's sort of cheesy because it's made for the general public, but this story is just so interesting that's what's so interesting about it but the they don't actually focus very much on the domestic violence one i mean they definitely bring it up but it's more about the the court it's more like a csi or mm-hmm. you know law and order episode where you you get the behind the scenes with the judge and the lawyers and the you know all those kinds of people and they they don't depict any of the violence. It, it's all it all it begins with the aftermath. You know what I mean? They never flash back because that cause that's the other thing is they don't actually come out and say who they think did it. Although it, I'm pretty sure the in fact I think I saw an interview that the creators think that OJ did it, but they never really say that for sure. And then, anyway, you should watch it. And they talk about the domestic violence that was happening with Nicole Brown and how she called the police tens of times Mm. saying that he was going to kill her. The amount of violence and the amount of fear that OJ had uh, perpetrated on Nicole Brown Simpson over many years, it's, it it provides a a good example of, of really a typical domestic violence situation.
1: Well, and that there is a pattern of escalation. I mean, one of the things I see in my office where I just turn the safety planning way up is when it's mostly female clients describe that the mostly male perpetrators are beginning to block exits. Yeah. This, this comment like gives me chills just to say it, but you know, I hear this so often. He, he's, He's, it's gotten to the point where he won't let me leave the room we're arguing and 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 he won't let me leave right um and that's when i just reiterate everything that we've been talking about before but i let them know things are escalating yeah that's a really scary sign that Which, i'm scared for you yeah. that he's not letting you leave the room wow. this is a sign that things have moved to The violence, the the physical violence has moved to a next level. And in the moment, they're so terrified that they might not see that that's a huge shift. But I know in my work, anecdotally, that's a really big deal.
0: Right. It's a crazy-making situation. Often, the, the victim is isolated, as we've talked about. And the situation is such that when you talk to a therapist and someone who's educated in this can can and can actually emphasize the potential future that this, you know, person has before them. It's an eye-opening situation. It might seem quite obvious to an outsider, but when you're a victim, you start there's a, you know, all of us are like this when when there are two people in the room and one person is very convinced of one thing, the other person starts to become convinced of that thing too. And victims can become quite convinced of the perpetrator's way of thinking, essentially. And when they talk to us and we say these kinds of things, like, you don't deserve that. And this could get much worse. You know, victims will often be like, oh yeah, you're probably right. And it's because they've been so influenced in their mind by the victim.
1: Right. So, Can I give an example? So I had a client, she had come back into counseling. She's describing that the control that had really been present earlier in the relationship, this is common now with a second child as the husband is trying to figure out how to exist. It's just (laughs) bumped, everything's bumped up to a new level. But one of the main things she was saying is now he's blocking my exit. And so I'm doing all kinds of safety planning with her, and I let her know I was going to tell this story on, t- on the show today. On but TV. On TV. I'm on TV right now. Uh, in, your, in your mind. In my mind.
0: <laughs> I'm ready for my close-up.
1: Uh, so one of the most chilling moments of my clinical practice ever was opening the door, turning, locking eyes with her. All she did was lift her hand, and she had a cast on her arm, and she didn't have to say. You know, she just came and my office and like I'm doing everything I can not to tear up because I know her worst fear has come true that the situation escalated to physical violence. Um, and it, and it was, we've talked about that moment for years. I think we're two or three years out now, but I will say, remember when I was doing all that safety planning with you before that day, and she will say, yeah, at the time, I couldn't figure out why you were doing that. Um, but as a therapist, I don't know if this is true for you, but we can start to see patterns before our clients can yeah. see them.
0: We have more experience with these situations than our, than our client. I mean, not that we've necessarily been in those situations, but we've seen enough patterns to know that there are certain pos- likelihoods that are, that are likely to happen. So and you know denial is a big thing right when when any of us are in a situation where we have two opposing forces in our brain psychodynamically that cannot be resolved easily then a common defense mechanism is denial i want to be in a marriage i want to believe that my husband is a good man I love him. I'm a, I, I'm attached to him. I need him.
1: I have children with him. I have
0: children with him. I want to be a part of. A, I don't want to get divorced. I don't want to tell other people that I'm in a bad situation. So that's one side. The other side is, I'm in a bad situation. He's abusing me. I how, don't.
1: How can this be true? How can I, at whatever my social standing, my religious beliefs, my cultural background, how can this be happening to me?
0: Yeah. When you have all that happening in a typical human brain, then... It shorts out. <laughs> it shorts. And, and one of the sides, it, it becomes very easy for the brain, unconsciously, not consciously, to go into denial. And what people sometimes, uh, I think, don't understand is that denial is not a, often, it's not a conscious thing. It's not people don't consciously say i'm going to go into denial about that <laughs> it's something that the brain needs to do out of our awareness to protect ourselves from reality and
1: to keep changing diapers to keep dropping your kid off at school to keep yeah. making it to work to keep walking through the grocery store and smiling you know all to
0: this. to believe that what he said is true and that he'll never do it again mm-hmm to believe that he's a good man and there's a good side to him that will prevail to believe that love will cure to believe that you can help him to believe that you can get through this you know all that all that kind of stuff and, and
1: the idea that this is the new norm and it will only be like this from here on out is it's very hard to hold and conceptualize that this person will always be violent right like who wants to believe that?
0: Right. Or all men are violent. That's what men do. They they you know that's what my dad did. That's what my uncle did. That's what my first boyfriend did. And that's what my husband. That's just normal. Mm-hmm. It's just it's normal life. That's that's when men get uh, passionate. They they get angry and they get violent. That's just you know it's just how it is. What else are you gonna do? So um, right. So denial is is a big part of a big part of it and when your client was saying why are you talking about about safety planning when to you it was really uh, quite apparent that he 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 might actually escalate and then he did escalate and then she suddenly realized oh it it you were right
1: and i don't know if you've talked about safety planning before on the show but things i often tell people is you know do you have a s- clothes and medication and diapers in your car? Do you have a second set at your office? Do you have a relationship with someone that you could go to their house at the drop of a hat and your partner would not know where you are? Um, So those are kind of basic safety plannings I'm doing.
0: What else should people do? Like say, you know, someone comes in and, you know, it's session two, you're starting to detect that this person might be a ongoing victim of this sort of thing. What What do you say?
1: Uh, I give out the crisis line number. Okay. Both, they're both specifically for domestic violence and other services. Um, I remind people that they are allowed to call 911. Often people feel like, you know, that would be a bad idea. But I really encourage people, if the situation, if you feel like things are really out of control, 911 might be your best option. Yeah, um, And that's scary for people. There's a chance that the partner could go to jail. There's a chance that both of them could go to jail. There's a chance that their kids could get pulled. Um, but some situations, it's that's why those emergency services are present.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, in addition to that, will give them a... Domestic Violence association or organization uh, set up to advocate for victims, and what I tell them is what will happen is the advocate will is not a therapist they're more like a caseworker. They can be very helpful like a therapist, but they don't provide therapy they're more of a of a case manager, and they're more available than I am to talk in a crisis situation. And you can call them uh, and, you know, again, the crisis line is a good place to call too. But uh, having an ongoing case manager who knows your situation and can advocate for you and set you up with shelters or have the various different suggestions that you're saying and, and really work in the moment with with clients that I work with. So I, I found that to be helpful too. Have you found that to be helpful?
1: Yeah, and that those advocates... If they do leave, can help them transition into the court system, right. which is incredibly complicated. Right. And I advise everyone who's going through the court system around domestic violence to have an advocate. Yeah. And those systems are extremely underfunded. And if you have money you need to give away, please give it to domestic violence shelters.
0: Yeah. And I just want to point out as i'm sure some people are slowly grumbling about this is we're heterosexualizing this and genderizing it in a in a very limited way. There's a reason for that. I don't know what your reason is, Rebecca, but we can talk about that, but we have to acknowledge that in same-sex relationships the rates are similar to heterosexual relationships and also men can be victims of female perpetrator domestic violence, intimate partner violence, it tends to, it's lesser in that way. Uh, the rate is is lesser, but that doesn't mean we don't talk about it. But it often looks different given the often size of the body, essentially the strength of the person, and also the privilege that people have. Men have more privilege and therefore, and are taught a certain privilege, mentally speaking, a certain entitlement, and women are not given that same message as children. And therefore there's, and perhaps testosterone has something to do with it. Who knows? But the point is, is that it's uh, women perpetrators, men victims are, there's a lesser rate of it, but it definitely happens. And it's just as horrible there. It's hard for some people to imagine, but I've seen it and it is just as horrible. Often in my experience with women perpetrators, It's not a physical, it doesn't look in that classic. Right, it's so
1: much more emotional abuse, the constant put-downs, the controlling of the money.
0: Right, put-downs, money, but also fear. Mm -hmm. Anyone is capable of killing your children, and women are just as capable of killing children as, as men are, and so, or the pets, or burning the house down, or or frankly, cutting off your penis in the middle of the night. Like like the whole Bobbitt thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I hear that, people laughed about that story. It's like, oh, you know, she got back at him. And I remember in the early 90s kind of having a similar thought. It's like, oh, he must have been, you know, excuse the impression, but, expression, but he must have been quite a dick to uh, have that that nice woman do that horrible thing. But And who knows what the situation is, and I'm sure maybe there's data on that, that I'm not aware of, but there's a chance that she was a terrible, terrible human being who was abusive to him. Who knows? But the point is, is that when a, uh, a woman is abusing often uh, again, emotional abuse put down, but it can also just be fear. Like the woman could uh, say things like uh, could be emotionally reactive. So, so same situation, husband's at work. He, he, uh, stays a little late at work she texts him she calls him he's not returning phone calls he arrives in an hour or two later than expected she, when he walks in the door she has destroyed the 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 home she's broken things she's crying she's yelling she's uh when you see someone in that situation you don't know what else they're capable of if someone is that emotionally reactive, there's this there's this inherent implication of, look what I've done to our house. I who knows what I'm going to do, and to uh, a man in that situation or anyone, that can be extremely terrifying, <laughs> and that's why they call it uh, intimate terrorism or something or partner terrorism. They're 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 moving away from of the word violence because mm. it's often not violence. It can be, they're using, I'm hearing DV people starting to use the word terrorism in, in rom- romantic relationship terrorism because it's, it's, you know, the terrorists of 9-11 only actually hurt a small set of Americans, yet all of us were, were terrified of them, right? Right. And it's similar in these situations.
1: Well, I like the definition here of emotional abuse. So it's um, using put-downs, making you feel bad about yourself, calling you names, making you think you're crazy, playing mind games, humiliating you, making you feel guilty. Yeah. Um, So all of those things can be present. And in uh, King County, we're so lucky that there is a domestic or there is a Partner violence group that specializes in the queer community. Uh, their name is completely sp- spacing. You don't remember <laughs> it <laughs> this time. I can like see their logo and their lovely "We Love Queer Love" stickers. Yeah. And as a, like a lot of relation, like a lot of organizations that address this, they uh, do relationship workshops. They do all kinds of things to educate people about what relationships should be like.
0: Northwest Network. Yes, called
1: the Northwest Network.
0: Well, what else can we say? I don't think we can go through every single point here unless you Uh, just want to rip through them.
1: But here's one I think is really important, and I see this a lot, is using isolation, uh, controlling what you do, who you see, who you talk to, what you read, where you go, limiting outside involvement, using jealousy to justify actions. And these days with, Cell phones, I'm hearing so much. I come home, he picks up, they pick up my cell phone. They check out who I'm talking to. They question me on each connection. Um, or, you know, they told me not to hang out with my mom. My kid doesn't see that grandparent anymore. Right. Um, that that isolation It can really change someone's life. Or, you know, they move you from the community that, that you've been into to a new community. They don't let you make new friends in that community. And it's really hard to leave if you've lost your social network.
0: Right. And hard to not think you're going crazy. There's something wrong with you. Uh, it's hard not to think that... Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to imagine that you deserve better. When we are isolated, we tend to lose perspective, essentially. And so uh, it's an effective way of keeping the cycle of violence and, and intimidation going. I- I'm reminded of, of a couple of situations clinically that I want to just sort of briefly talk about because it is s- basically similar to what you're saying, but a nuance to the classic domestic violence situation. I knew someone who was check- was actually very compulsive probably could have been diagnosed with OCD and he would check her phone all the time and like download apps on her phone to monitor her and that kind of thing. But the general pattern was not one of domestic violence or not the classic domestic violence situation. It was more of a OCD anxiety issue. The wife, for sure was not happy about all these things happening, but didn't feel afraid or intimidated. It didn't limit her behavior essentially because if things went badly, she didn't worry that he was going to do anything to her. She was just annoyed for the most part. So that's a key and that we'll ask people Mm -hmm. often. That'll be the question. That's the one I tell my supervisees to ask is because sometimes it's like, well, I'm detecting maybe something's happening the question you ask is, do you feel unsafe? Mm-hmm. You ask the victim, how afraid are you? Great. And for some people, they'll be like, yeah, my partner's crazy and does crazy stuff, but I'm not, I'm not afraid of that. And that doesn't mean you don't address it, but it, it, it tells you the, the feeling that uh, is in the relationship. If you're terrified of your partner, that tells you that you're in a potentially a, you know, a terror Relationship.
1: Also, if the survivor is dissociating <laughs> during the event, I mean, so often we've already had previous be- traumas and we've learned to just check out. So that is often. Uh, that's a red flag for me as a clinician that someone will say, like, as this was happening, I felt like I was floating outside my body or it doesn't matter that much because I'm not even in the room when it happens. So if you're a clinician and you hear that your client is dissociating a lot to get through situations, that's a really important piece of information.
0: Right. And a direction to take with trauma healing and recovery in general because they didn't develop that dissociative mechanism in their adult life in all likelihood. Okay. What else can we say?
1: Uh, I don't know. Uh, should we just do the last one? Cause sure. I think this is a, a biggie. Okay. Um, so it's using coercion and threats, making or carrying out threats to hurt the person, threatening to leave, threatening to commit suicide, threatening to report the other person to welfare making that other person drop the charges, which is a huge thing, making that person do illegal things.
0: Yeah, right. So, again, just to highlight the various nuances of this, you point out threatening suicide. That seems like a funny thing to be intimidated by, right? But scary to think about that. Plus, again, if you need that person or if you right. there's a part of you that loves that person or in your head you're thinking you're going to be with this person forever, threatening suicide is one of the ways that I've seen women perpetrators perpetrate against men is they might use suicide as a manipulative tool as a way of trying to get the other person. Because a- another fear for, for some victims that I've actually, men victims of, of female perpetrators, I've heard them say, uh, well, I don't really care if she kills herself. I Honestly, I, I wouldn't mind because I would be rid of her. I mean, that's how bad it can get. But what I worry about is people will think it was my fault. Mm -hmm. And so everyone will hate me or her father will kill me or, you know, so there's, there's even that level of intimidation that can control a victim in a relationship like that. But so those are obviously probably more rare than these other ones.
1: But so, but what, what I often see in my practice is for often women with children, the idea that their partner will commit suicide and that then their children will blame them for the rest of their lives. Right. So that threat is enormous and right. carries. And really in the cases that I've worked with that card can get played almost weekly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it can be very effective in that way. Other things, again, you read here are uh, carrying out threats to her. Uh, you know, if, if if you don't come home on time or if you don't if you talk to that friend again, mm-hmm. then I'm gonna I'm gonna beat you up. I'm gonna which happens. There are it just the thing that's always just so bizarre to me. 2016 in Seattle, progressive Seattle with all of our modern bells and whistles. We right now in this town there are people in classic domestic violence situations where women are being routinely beat by their husbands because the woman doesn't do exactly what he says. I just I whenever I think about that, I just think it's it just doesn't jive with the vision I have for our where we're at in our society, but but that's where we're at. It's it's reducing over time as we add more advocacy, more awareness, more services. There are statistics that I've read that it's it declines over time, but it's still it's still happening frequently.
1: Yeah. I mean, to get the sense in my world, it is never talked about outside of my office or outside of the clinicians. You never pick up, I never pick up my kid at school and say to the other parents picking up, Well, I'm really thinking about domestic violence today. And how many of you are experiencing it? You know, I could never be that blatant with it. Right. But when two to three clients, day are addressing it in my office and for most of those clients it takes you know the average is to leave that relationship seven times before you leave for good these are long protracted stories um that it's this huge epidemic and we're never talking about it right it blows my mind and that's why i wanted to do this show today because it's like i'm sick of holding this story yeah and i'm sick of my clients feeling isolated i mean they tell me these kind of coded ways that they have to talk about their divorce or um a client told me this story about how she was alerted that there was a situation happening where someone in her office would soon be leaving and how she took that person aside and, you know, respectfully in a hushed tone said, I'm two years ahead of you. Um, but this idea that you could never talk about it openly um, and that the survivors are really still managing with the secret and finding many creative ways to hold that secret.
0: Yeah, we're ashamed of any kind of conflict in marriage anyway. I mean, as a couple therapist i can tell you that most couples are having troubles and all of those couples think they're the only couples that are having those troubles i can't tell you how many times i've had couples sit on my couch and and complain to me about what's going on in their relationship and they look at me like they're so ashamed they're just thinking and i'm looking at them thinking you're average you, you, <laughs>
1: there is nothing special about your conflict,
0: right? What you were talking about, although I'm, you know, glad you're seeking help and you know, let's let's work on this. And I've, you know, succeeded with a lot of couples in your situation. I think you you're probably actually above average in terms of functioning because you you actually you're acknowledge help. that something is wrong and you're actually getting help. So. So what I, t- I tell them that, and they're just like, really? And I feel like I'm never really quite convincing, but I can tell you in my experience, so many couples have have really, you know, significant issues to work out. It's it's just human nature. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just human nature to be complicated and to have uh, uh, issues from our childhood that play out in in relationships. Uh, you'll you'll never be as much of a dick as you are to your spouse, strangely. And Because
1: they're safe to be that much of a dick too.
0: That and we are so vulnerable and dependent on our spouses for attachment that we will become so upset when they don't meet those needs and will play all sorts of games and do all sorts of bad things to our spouses. And the, you know, I, so everyone really should be in therapy. Is my point, <laughs> because it's uh, the and you don't have to be in therapy forever. You know, maybe five sessions. I, I've seen many couples where I, I've just seen s- the same pattern over and over again. Not in all the couples that I see, but a very similar pattern of of a inner need for love and for security and for stability and then uh, a uh, systemic, cyclical issue between the two people that escalates to the point for years they're hurting each other's feelings when both of them are desperate for the other person's love and security. And once we can get to that vulnerability and get get them both uh, asking in a vulnerable way and, and caring em- empathetically for the other person, things become quite beautiful um, I'm realizing I'm, I'm going on a tangent. I don't even know why I decided to do this.
1: Well, I think that this subject brings up what's the opposite. If, I've never had clients say that to me. Like, what the hell does a healthy relationship look like? I don't even know. Right. And it's just what you're talking about. It's when you can be vulnerable with that other person, when you can have a bad day and they're there to support you, when you can you know in my relationship it's the trigger issue tends to be how i put the garbage bag liners in the garbage bag in the garbage can yeah i mean that can set off world war 3 in my house
0: right and it's not and what people will say is and they'll sit on my couch and they'll be like Th- they'll say that and they'll just look at me like, what's wrong with me? And I'll say, there's nothing wrong with you. The reason why it it seems so silly is is because that behavior means something between the two people. If that was the first time you did it, then no big deal. But it's what it means, what it's communicating, for instance, with the <laughs> liner to someone who has... Told their spouse literally thousands of times, please do it this other way. And for for you, Rebecca, to not do it, <laughs> it, it feels to the other person as though you're communicating that you don't even, you don't love me, you don't respect me, <laughs> you're not listening to me, you don't understand how important it is to me. So it feels ridiculous and you're laughing your ass off right now. But it's what it communicates, and when you're in a relationship past five years, uh, marriages, couples have a long list of these quirks of communication. To another couple, the liner means nothing. To your relationship, it means a lot. Am I? Am I? Oh yeah.
1: I mean, we're eighteen years in at this point, right?
0: So it's 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 ridiculous. It's what it communicates to your to your partner, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, I think that um, oh, the flows of a healthy relationship are, there are, like, you know, bad weeks, there are bad years. Um, but can you continue to find a way to support each other? And I think the flip side, you know, I'm always interested of, like, what is the issue of the moment? And ESPN did this amazing short video. I don't know if you've seen it, but it is female reporters having random men off the street read to them the anonymous tweets that they get. Mm. And it goes from everything from you're a bad writer to these tweets that these men can't even read to these women face to face. I mean, basically I hope that you get raped again. I hope that, you know, you are beaten to death. Um, but we live in a culture that has intense misogyny towards women. Our current presidential race, it's like, it's just kind of blatant. Uh, But I just want to speak to the fact that like, you know, why are we talking about heterosexual relationships so much? Um, And that really I've seen in my practice as a lesbian clinician that um, men are given a lot of permission to secretly hate women. And misogyny is hard to talk about, uh, but I can tell you it's really, really present.
0: Right. It's why, that's why earlier I was like, maybe it's testosterone, maybe it's body size. But at the very least, we know that it is, the reason why men are more likely to be perpetrators, particularly on the extreme end, is very likely a result of misogyny. We teach our young men that, Women are supposed to be put in their place. That to be a man, to some extent, the one, uh, perhaps the most valid way to assert your manhood, which is a which is a which is very much connected to your worth in society, is to control a woman. I was watching. uh, I just recently got cable. You said you don't have TV. I I just oh I have TV. Oh, but you don't have cable. But but I just recently got cable like last week and so but I don't watch it on my TV I like watch it on my computer and um and so I was watching this I don't know why I'm telling you that but anyway I it's a lot of on demand stuff and I watched this movie uh, from the eighties just because I was uh, I was always curious about this movie called Johnny Be Good it has Anthony Michael Hall in it playing a jock and it has Robert Downey Jr. playing this like and it has Uma Thurman. <laughs> And it says, introducing... It's a terrible, terrible movie. I'm not even kidding. I mean, people talk about Batman v Superman being a terrible movie. I don't think they remember how terrible movies actually were. In the 80s, movies, terrible movies were were terrible. I mean, people Batman v Superman, they're just like, oh my God. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, this is a terrible, terrible movie. I, I skipped forward several times. I was like... I'm just curious as to where this is going, but of course in the end the Uma Th- okay, Uma Thurman throughout the entire movie has no agency. She's just mm-hmm. the girlfriend of the guy and she's a major character. She's not peripheral. She's that's an ensemble cast of these three of these three people and the lead guy Anthony Michael Hall, he's a star quarterback and everyone wants him to they're they're trying to recruit him into different colleges and she's just a girlfriend. That's all she is. And in the, in the very last scene, he kisses her in this way that just feels so possessing of her, you know, like he's won the day and then he grabs her and kisses her, not in a way of like, let me try to please you, but let me put my mark on you. Mm -hmm. Like I, you're mine. You're a beautiful woman and I have you. I I can't really describe it, but there's so many of these messages. We're, of course, getting incrementally better as we move forward, but yeah. So even in an innocuous, stupid movie, there's just tons of these subtle um, and not so subtle messages being taught to our young men that they need to possess women, that they have the right to possess women, that they should possess women and or hate them and or hurt them for their own gain, and that is why men are more likely to become perpetrators. And when they become perpetrators, to some extent, they're just following cultural mandates.
1: Right. I mean, so, and that's why it's so hard to treat perpetrators, is they often don't see that they've done anything wrong. And they will deny that it happened. That's just her side of the story. If you would have been there that night you would have agreed that she was escalating the situation, too. Right. Um,
0: right. They'll say, she took a swing at me or something. Like, the Rice situation. Have you seen that clip of in the elevator?
1: You know, I. whenever i went on your show, I realize how fragile I am. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I consume so much media, but you say that, and I'm like, no, I couldn't watch it.
0: Well, don't, yeah, don't trigger your, don't expose yourself to things you can't watch. It's pretty brutal, but there was a whole debate because she she lunged at him prior to what he did to her and there were a lot of people saying he defended himself
1: and i think that's why this wheel is important to know that beyond that one hit there are so many other factors going on right. that are leading to that there is really a perpetrator and a survivor in this situation um,
0: right. You have to look at the full pattern. Plus, he is a professional athlete with, you know, humongous muscles. <laughs> and she's a wafy woman who would have a hard time hurting him. Not that she couldn't, but it's, it's so it's all in the context of the broader situation. Plus, he laid her out.
1: And I think it's so interesting in our culture that when we talk about domestic violence, the cases that become famous it's so often african-american men as perpetrators and i I can tell you there's a it's a whole lot of white guys out there (laughs) and i'm just so curious how those stories stay out of the media and and why the media does that right um it's so rare that you you hear and uh, you know an interesting case that happened right here was hope solo um, perpetrating violence against her family members. And like that case got, you know, swept away really, really fast. Right. Um, whereas we're still talking about the Rice case, still talking about OJ. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is
0: interesting. I mean, I think just initially, I think it's because of obviously racism. And when, when, white males who control media and, and the consumption of media to some extent are uncomfortable with something, then it doesn't get, um, doesn't get talked about more. It's, it's similar to the cases where there's a female perpetrator. There are lots of situations where that will come up and it just never gets talked about. Um, or when men are raped, there are cases when that happens but how often is that reported on mm-hmm. there are men being raped uh not as often as women but it's ha- it's happening and yet many people don't even think that's possible so, today and again 2016 educated americans will say how can a man get raped that doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. by a woman how can how can a man be raped by a woman that doesn't make any sense and that just breaks my heart for for victims and that's why it doesn't get reported because the victims the victims of all situations feel stigmatized and and su- repressed and suppressed and but particularly people that are in what we might consider culturally ignored groups of people anyway we're kind of getting off off topic here but
1: well and what i see in my office so much is that sense of isolation and that's the first thing i try and break open is they will say I can't tell anyone I'll I'll ask who have you told they'll say I've only told you and I'll just be like flat out like that has to change so let's pick three safe people today that you will go home hmm. and tell or sit on my chair outside my office and make some calls make some tweets yeah not some tweets <laughs> <laughs> uh but this idea of breaking the isolation is really crucial to build a su- support network so that you, you can move forward.
0: Right. And so the practice of rejecting a client in this situation could deny them the possibility of talking that out with you over time, which is kind of the approach that I have in situations like this is like, well, at least they're, they're talking with someone. Right. And if I shove them out the door, there's a chance that they'll never talk to anyone again. Yeah. So they can come here, and maybe they'll stay in their relationship for a year before they decide to take action. But they might need that time to for that to happen. The other thing that you you're, you've talked about that I just want to highlight for the listeners is, like you said, it's a process. It can be years and years, years and years of years. talking and taking action and going back and and it's in, in our minds. It's like we'll just leave him. Just, just leave him. But it's it's way more complicated than that for for many people, especially for people that are in more nuanced situations that I've worked with. Because I don't, I can't remember the last time I worked with a classic survivor of of abuse like this. It's often much more the emotional abuse side that, that right. I'll see, and so it's, and for some of these people, there's a very viable solution of. Maybe we can work this out. Maybe we, maybe I don't have to leave him. Maybe, maybe we can get help and we can actually improve our relationship so that I don't have to leave him. And so that has to be explored uh, over time.
1: Well, and also what we talked about today, like how impossible it is to find an affordable way to live in most American cities right now. The idea that your standard of living would go down dramatically. You would need to support two households. Most people don't live near family anymore. So this idea that, you know, you could just move in with your sister for a while until you got things under control. I mean, some of the reasons it's taking so long is that people are planning a way to get out and to get out for stability. Often they'll say for their children.
0: Right. it It's a process. It takes time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I always say to my clients, behavior change is hard. If it was easy, I'd be out of a job.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, on that note, that does it for <laughs> this episode. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself. And let's all, let, uh, let's all reduce the stigma. Let's start talking about yeah. it. Yeah. The next time you're at a soccer game with your kid's soccer game, turn to the person next to you and go, you know, I'd like to talk about domestic <laughs> violence. Um, you know, I, Or
1: how about this, to say, hey, if you ever needed somewhere to go, you could come to my place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe wear a t-shirt that says, I, what, what would it say? Um, domestic violence happens. Or maybe an organization, like some organization that says, let's all end domestic or violence together. have
1: a bake sale to support a local domestic violence shelter. You have no ah. idea how these organizations have been running on a shoestring for 40 or 50 years i mean there is a time not so long ago i'm going off so just get ready so this movement that there is a that you could even leave is very young 40 years old that there have been safe houses for people to leave domestic violence situations this whole time they have been running on a bare bones structure, and it's really the commitment of women who are willing to work for minimum wage because they believe in this concept so strongly that there should be somewhere to go. So, have a bake sale for a domestic violence shelter near you.
0: I like it. A bake sale. Well, that does it for the episode. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because.
1: You're so worth it. I love you.